0: So they said, okay, you're hired. The day you're out of the Army, you're going to come to New York and we're going to put you in the show. And so the day I was out of the Army in February, I flew to New York and I learned this one dance that they wanted. They really wanted the ballet boy to be put in right away. And uh, within a week, I was
1: dancing on Broadway. Welcome to the podcast for ballerinas, adult ballerinas, parents of ballerinas, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Georgia Canning, also known as The Balance Ballerina, and it's my mission to break down the elitist barriers often associated with ballet. Through my own studios and ballet-related businesses, I'm all about providing space and content for people from all walks of life to experience and enjoy the many benefits of ballet. Each month, I'll bring you industry leaders and thought-provoking guests who will hopefully inspire you to lead a more balanced life, full of grace, with a little grit. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of the day it is. Whenever and wherever you're listening to this, I hope you are well, and I hope you're keeping safe. Now, Finus Jung, where do I even begin? It's been an absolute dream of mine to speak with Finus for over a year now, and I always thought I'd contact him if I had a plan to travel to New York, which is where he's based, so that we could meet and speak and do this interview in person. But with the current pandemic, isolation, blah, 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 I know, everyone's so sick of hearing about it, I thought, there's no better time than the present. So I sent him a little message, and I was delighted when he was not only quick to respond, but super eager to come on the podcast. Now, I knew his story would be good, but I was not prepared for just how good it truly is. At 83 years old, Finus gives us a glimpse Into the 1960s, where the ballet world was very different to the world it is today. During this conversation, we begin with his love of practicing hula and ballet as a young one, to the time he spent serving his country in the war. Then we bounce from dancing and travelling around the world, staying in five star hotels, to his epiphany laying by a hotel pool, which led him into Buddhism. If I'm honest, this story, this journey is the perfect escape during a time like this. So I want you to pour yourself a cup of tea. I want you to sit back and I want you to relax whilst enjoying Finus's incredible story and infectious enthusiasm. And you know what, what an amazing storyteller Finus is. In fact, I usually put a few more details into these introductions, but to be honest, I'm not going to spoil or share too much more as no one tells his story quite better than himself. But what I will say is that Finus does what Finus wants. Finus does what he believes in. He doesn't care about the rules of classical ballet and yet teaches, in my opinion, one of the most pure versions of it. He is absolutely unapologetic and hates laziness. And because of these things, I absolutely love him. And I think you're going to love him too. Now, I usually reserve my recommendations to the end, but if you're after more, you can purchase his book directly from finestjung.com. You're going to really love this one. How about we just jump straight into it? Yeah. like I said, I it, it's, it's quite a thrill to be speaking to you right now because I've been watching and following you for such a long time and I actually <laughs> had an ambition to come to New York and I was going to message you when I was in New York and hit you up for an interview, but during this lockdown situation that we're in in the world right now, I thought I better get on to it and I may as well just connect now.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah.
1: So I was wondering whether you could share with the listeners and start with um, a little bit about uh, your own ballet journey.
0: Okay. Well, first of all, everyone should know that I was born in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in Hawaii in 1937. And this was a long time ago. There was no TV None of the things that we're so used to using today. We had um, the movies and we had the radio. The radio was basically our entertainment, it was free. Um, We had the movies, we had the newspapers, we had comic books, Um, but that was it. Every Saturday I would go to the movies and um, I was born into a very normal family, meaning, nobody was artistic. Um, we weren't wealthy. Uh, my parents uh, actually had a, a tailor shop at the Hickam Air Force Base. And um, so during the wartime, of course, it was um, quite something for all of us. But anyway, I was, uh, was in 1937. Then when I was nine years old, I guess finally I saw You know, in those days, everything was black and white, too, right? This was before the red shoes in color. So I, um, and I was actually, they used to call me monkey. You know, my nickname was Keko, which means monkey, because I was always so active. I could never sit still. And um, so when I was nine years old, apparently I I was inspired. And I told uh, my mother, by then my parents were divorced. And I said, when I grow up, I'm going to be a famous dancer and I'm going to live in Hollywood in New York. You know, I mean, that's all I can oh, think of. I love that. Yeah, Hollywood. And you have to realize, again, as I said, we, we lived, um, I mean, we didn't know anybody who was a performer. Uh, you know, we were just ordinary people. And um, so eventually also um, we found a place, a woman named Dorothy Hella Smoots, who had actually danced with uh, Pavlova her traveling company, and uh, she had had, you know, the traditional chiquetti training, and she had a little one-room studio, and um, so my mother let me start, and I had to join a class of actually older girls. Um, Of course, there were no boys. You know, it was absolutely crazy that, um, but somehow, my mother um, believed in me, and, and she let me do it, and my brothers, of course, were so embarrassed, you know, because, I mean, no boys danced, first of all, and let alone a bow-legged, at that time I was called, we were Orientals. So I was an Oriental boy in Hawaii. So it had to be a big secret. But anyway, I, um, I loved it. I loved it when we went there and she played, you know, records. Uh, she didn't have a pianist. And she actually taught... Um, In a house, you know, in a house, it was actually like a big living room, and um, so that from that time, nine years old, thirty-seven, must have been nineteen forty-eight, maybe. And I was in elementary school at that time. I also learned to dance hula. All of this,
1: (laughs) by by the way,
0: um, is in my memoir, Ballet for Life, and there are photos of all of this. And, you know, all your, your listeners can now get the Kindle version, uh, which is very inexpensive. And it has all the photos and you can just blow up the photos and it's easy to read. You get it on Amazon. But in any case, um, I also studied the hula and I studied with who was then the, the best teacher in the islands. And I loved it. And um,
1: Amazing. What's the biggest difference between hula and ballet?
0: Well, hula is barefoot for one thing, and, and there's there's no turnout. And in, in ballet, where well, you're supposed to to focus and concentrate on your hips, you know, uh, in, in hula, you're supposed to wiggle them. Um, but in any case, you have to understand. I I took a, a one-hour class that had a little bit of ballet, like you um, lift your leg up in a split and hop across the floor, and then we did tap. And we did acrobatics. I could do backbends then, um, so it was you know just a mixed kind of class. It wasn't strict ballet, um, <clears throat> and I remember being taught grand jeté en charleston. That was called one, two, three, kick land. You know, <laughs> so I mean, for me, it was great because I was dancing to music, which I which I loved, and uh, I continued doing that, and then eventually. Uh, in another year or so, actually, I started partnering uh, a girl, actually two girls. Uh, one was Japanese and one was Caucasian, uh, Carol and Diana. And, and believe it or not, they were in point shoes. And again, if you get my memoir, you'll see photos of them and they're just barely standing on point. Um, but anyway, um, I'd made my first public appearance dancing. Um, invitation to the dance with Carol, the Japanese girl yes. at, a, at a beauty pageant and uh, mm. when I had to make my big leap onto the stage the lights went out and so I almost fell oh, off no. the stage yeah so but anyway they turned them back on and we did it and so that was my first performance on stage and um, I continued, Having a once a week class because also we were very poor, so the teacher really taught me for nothing. And she took me to see um, Anton Dolan, Alicia Markova, uh, Mia Slavenska because these people would pass through Honolulu and um, um, you know give guest performances. So that's how I was able to see live ballet, and then I actually was taken to meet Anton Dolin. And so he said, well when you grow up, you come and see me. And as it happened, about 20 years later maybe, when I was uh, a principal dancer with the Harkness Ballet in New York, he came to New York to stage his famous uh um, cat for four men variations before, and yeah. I got and I got the jumping variation, the Patasha variation. So it was strange that after all those years, you know, he came to see me, and he picked me. So that was a big thrill. That's
1: amazing. I That's mean, amazing. I I was going to ask you um, whether you could share some stories from your time as a young professional at Harkness Ballet. The the company actually even in itself has an amazing story.
0: Yeah, well, and also you know, I actually taught in Australia because when I was Did you? yeah when I was with the with the Harkness. I met Mayna Gilgood because we all took class with um, Rosella Hightower in Cannes. And I met Mena, and uh, somehow she remembered me. So when she directed the Australian ballet, I think I went there in maybe 83, 84, something like that. And I went to Melbourne and I went to uh, Sydney and it was wonderful with them, except what happened is uh, in, in Sydney, um, I took a jacuzzi. I, I was in the yep. jacuzzi. And then when I got out of it, I bent over to get some clothing out of my drawer and my back went into spasm. And it was excruciating. So I could hardly walk. I could hardly sit. So I had to kind of limp into the studio. I mean, they were very good to me. They were very understanding. You know, I could give them the class, but I was sitting in the chair so it's really embarrassing, you know, to go all that way um, oh, and, no. yeah, and to be crippled. But they were wonderful people. And I think um, I remember Dale. I can't remember his last name, but um, uh, they were good to me. I have such a wonderful uh, recollection of working with Australian people as being very friendly. And of course, the wine was great and the food was great. But we do
1: have good wine. (laughs) Yes.
0: But the thing that happened really through all my life and which is uh, recounted in the memoir is that, you know, for a poor boy uh, from Honolulu, um, actually all my dreams ended up coming true. Um, I was able to go to the University of Utah where I got my first traditional training. I mean, I never knew what a frappe was or a fondue. I'd never done that in Hawaii. But he was wonderful for male dancers, Uh, Willem Christensen. And he had founded the San Francisco Ballet. And he could still do everything. He could do double tours and the pirouettes, you know, and he had danced in vaudeville. And he was wonderful because he was so musical. And at that time, there were other dancers like um, Michael Smeon and Kent Stoll who later became directors of their own companies and, you know, well-known dancers. But um, that, that was like a dream come true for me because I loved to study and it was there that I, that I found out I could be a ballet dancer. And in my third year, I was good enough to actually dance the lead uh, in Coppelia in his full in Coppelia. And I did all the partnering, the overhead lifts and, I have a picture of me in my memoir in the Entre I mean, I, I really, he said, I, I accelerated like a house of fire because I was just so happy dancing and studying. I improved so quickly. So what happened when I graduated in 1959, I had plans. I thought, well, I want to go to New York. But at that time, we were at war. I don't know if it was with Germany or whatever it was going on there. But anyway, you had to do some kind of military service. So I chose the National Guard because it was only six months. And while I was there, I got a telegram from New York, from Rogers and Hammerstein, because Flower Drum Song, the musical about the Chinese in Chinatown, was a big hit on Broadway. And they heard about me because someone I had danced with in Utah, his good friend was in the show and he told her about me and they needed a replacement because, you know, uh, one of the lead dancers was leaving. So I got the telegram and it said, you know, possibility of your joining Flower Drum Song. And I was in, it was in the middle of winter and I was in the army in my boots in uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. So I got permission to go to New York and I did. I hadn't danced, you know, for months, yeah. but I got myself in this shape. And the main thing they needed is that they I had to do double cabriole, double tour, and I could do it. So they said, okay, you're hired. The day you're out of the army, you're going to come to New York and we're going to put you in the show. And so the day I was out of the army in February, I flew to New York and I learned this one dance that they wanted. They really wanted the ballet boy to be put in right away. And uh, within a week, I was dancing on Broadway, and I was doing my you know double carry-all, double tour, as well as other parts in the show.
1: finest that is an amazing story. Well, that wait, is...
0: yeah, but you haven't heard the rest of it. You're not. <laughs> because... You're not
1: done yet, are you? Well, <laughs>
0: well, what happened is once I got to New York. um... I started taking class from Madame Peria Slavic, who was, you know, the Royal Ballet whenever they went to New York. Everybody studied with her. Margot Fontaine was in class and Anthony Dowell. He was then a young boy. He was my age. Um, So there I was taking class and she loved me. And she put me in the front row between Margot Fontaine and Alicia Alonso was in class. I stood behind her, Violet Verdi, Allegra Kent, Royas Fernandez, and there I was with all these world famous dancers. And what she did is, she started to, in you know, force me into a very tight fifth, and she'd scrape up my ribcage. I mean, she loved me. She was wonderful. You know, I loved her. But she started to force me into being what I was not. And so what happened within, you know, a couple of months, I started to lose my double tours on stage. I was falling all over the stage because... She had forced my fifth position. So in my effort to try to you know, look like a perfect Russian dancer, which I was not, I lost my technique because I wasn't grounded. I couldn't feel the floor. Because, you see, Bill Christiansen never forced the positions. And um, so when she did that to me, I didn't realize what was the problem. And I just kept trying harder to be more perfect. And the harder I tried, the worse I got. So eventually I developed a mental block, you know, and I was just panicking because I would go on stage and I wouldn't know where or what was going to happen. I would just kind of blank out when I got on the stage and I looked out at the black audience, I just froze, you know, and I lost my, my timing, my coordination. So that persisted because I went on the road with flower drum song and in Christmas, I ended up in San Francisco, where my good friend Michael Smeon was. So he said, well, come and take class and let Lou Christensen, the director, look at you. So Lou said, you want to join the company? We'll take you. So I went into the San Francisco ballet, and I had to do the Nutcracker. And of course, the first thing I had to do was do the Russian variation in the Nutcracker, uh, twirling ribbons. And doing double tours with the ribbons above my head. And I had to do them <laughs> right next to Michael Smeowen, who could turn forever and was perfect. So there I was again.
1: No, no pressure or anything. <laughs> I, you
0: know, in the, in the San Francisco Opera House, it was huge, a huge stage. And when I went out there, you looked out there, it was pitch black. And I just was terrified you know, and I was just try to do it. So then, you know, uh, what I would do every afternoon in the studio, I could do the double tours in the studio in front of the mirror. But when I got on the stage with the lights and the costume and with those ribbons, I just, I just lost it, you know? And so I was just yeah. bouncing all over the stage, you know, it was just, oh, it was horrifying. And I had to do that for two years there. Um, mm-hmm. So I developed a mental block, you know, about double tours. Anyway, from there, though, I, I got into the Joffrey Ballet Company. And, yes. um, and there I started to recover because Bob Joffrey did not insist on forcing foot positions at all. And um, so I was able to start to go back you know, and find my body again. So it was still scary, but I could concentrate because we did a lot of touring with the Joffrey Company. You know, I went, we danced in Afghanistan. We danced in Tehran for the Shah of Iran. We went down to, well, the Harkness Ballet. We went to Egypt. But when finally with the Harkness Ballet under George Skibin, he gave me in several of his ballets variation. I mean, there was one of his ballets where I had to end up doing 12 double tours um, you know, I do six in the beginning and then six in the end. And, uh, in another of his ballets, I had to do maybe three or four more, but by then I had, I had gotten them and I learned, but also at that time, Eric Broom was a guest star in our company and he kind of mentored me, you know, and he was so perfect to watch. He would let me, Stand behind him when he did his warm up and he would let me sit next to him when he did his makeup. And so he yeah. really encouraged me and um, watching him dance. I kind of kept him in my mind. So I got over the double tour disease. And I think in one weekend, I did something like, I don't know, 24 double tours. So uh, George Skebeen, who had been the director of the Paris opera, he at the dinner, he gave me a bottle of champagne because he said he'd never seen anybody in his lifetime do as many double tours in one week as I did. So
1: <laughs> <Wow>.
0: <laughs> So I overcame it. So in any case, though, you see, we got to travel to all of these countries that I never, ever thought I would ever go to. To Greece, to Rome, to Russia, to Romania, you know. We, I mean, we were everywhere because we were part of the State Department tour And we went first class. We stayed in the best hotels. We were seven weeks in India. So we learned to dance on big stages, little stages. And when we weren't doing that in America, we were on the bus. So I danced in almost every city in America. We used to do what we call one night stands. So you do five different cities every week. You know, come rain or come snow. So I learned to dance, you know, everywhere under any kind of condition so you don't make any excuses. So that really toughened me that. up. Yeah, yeah. It,
1: it, it sounds like it was just such a, it sounds like it was such a very different world back then. Well, it <laughs> was. <in> five Star.
0: <laughs> well, it was. Also, it was before drugs, you know. No drugs, yeah. Well, also because Rebecca, Rebecca Harkness was our benefactress and she was Standard Oil. So we stayed wherever she stayed. She was always in the five-star hotels, so we stayed in the five-star hotels. We were treated very well. So again, I was extremely lucky, you know. So I think all my life I've somehow I've had a guiding star, you know, watching over me. Because in the end, you know, all my dreams come true. I was I was chosen to be uh, in Dance Magazine. I was I was the dancer of the month. Are we lost?
1: No, no, I'm here.
0: Oh, okay, something happened. Yeah. Um, okay, so anyway, but uh, you'll read it in my memoir. You all have to get my memoir because it, it recounts all of this and how I got started teaching. And and actually what happened is um, because I was Asian, and I guess I didn't realize it, I was doing all the exotic parts, you know, the long yeah. hair, the jewel of the navel. I was the company exotic. And by the time we are in Barcelona, I was also getting a little frustrated because I wasn't cast to do Napoli. Or, you know, I was just doing all kind of the the weird parts. And we met um, <laughs> this woman named Yuki, a Japanese. They were sent to treat us, uh, give us therapy with shiatsu. And um, we were all complaining, you know, and I just said, you know, I'm just so unhappy here because I'm not there. I want to do ballet dancing. I don't want to, you know, wear long hair and be half naked on the stage or wear makeup. So You wanted to be a classical dancer. Yeah, yes. exactly. And she says, well, you know, there's a way you can do this. You you can change all of this. And I said, um, she said you know you have to chant you have to learn how to chant and she told me these words which are namyoho rengekyo and she taught me how to be a buddhist and i said you know i don't believe i don't believe in god i gave up believing that a long time ago but she told me start doing this every day and you chant for your desires you chant for what you want and i thought well that sounds like a good deal you know <laughs> so i did i did i started chanting and what happened is um, I started getting stronger. My technique was better. I was featured in Dance Magazine. And from a soloist, I became a principal. And I started, by the time I finished, let's say, in 1969, I was only wearing white tights. I was only doing classical parts. And uh, I was a classical dancer. So my dreams came true. So after that, I became a confirmed Buddhist. In fact, I converted almost two-thirds of the Harkness Ballet Company became Buddhists. So wherever, whatever city we went to, you could smell incense in the hallways and the uh, clinking of bells and everybody was chanting. Because this was in 19... funny. Well, it was 1967, 68, 69. You know, JFK and before we went to the moon and the Woodstock LSD. You know, so that was when people believed that, um, you know, we could save the world. So, in fact, one day at the, at the swimming pool in Monte Carlo, we're actually in you know, the movie The Red Shoes. That's where Vicki Page leapt to her death. I was at the swimming pool and I said, you know, I can't do this. What am I doing lying by the swimming pool? Because I was a principal dancer, so I didn't rehearse very much. And I said, I, I have to quit Ballet and devote my life to Buddhism. So 1969, in February, I did my last performance, and then I, you know, I quit the Carkness Ballet and I became, so to speak, a full-time Buddhist. I went to work in an office because I could type. And so yes. I became a private secretary, <clears throat> which paid my rent. And so almost every night, every day, I became a full-time Buddhist. This meant you go out of the street and you, you invite strangers into a meeting place, whether it's your apartment or someplace, and you talk to them about Buddhism. And that's how we learned to convert people and people join because, you know, everyone was looking for something at that time. And, um, I stayed and I mean, to this day, I continue to practice privately. And it was through Buddhism that I actually developed my own technique where I felt uh, I'm going to do what I believe in. You know, I don't care what the rules are. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Through that practice too, you would have been developing your teaching skills.
0: Well, that's it. Because in Buddhism, you, you know, you're taught that heaven and hell exist within you and that you have the power to change your life. And that, in a sense, you can be anything you want. So using that as my starting point, then that's how I felt free to to play around and to start to experiment and give more unorthodox exercises so that by the time I opened my own studio, uh, it wasn't long before it was packed and... um, I had all the, I had dances from the New York City Ballet, from Ballet Theater, from Twyla Tharp, Martha Graham, Merce Cunningham, Paul Taylor, you know, all of New York's, well, at that time, New York's professional dancers had only three teachers to study with, Maggie Black, David Howard, or me. There was no Willie Berman at the time. There was no Step Studio. I mean, we were the top three. And if you were a professional, you studied with one of us. Or you alternated, so those were the heydays, you know, where I really got my fill of teaching professional dancers, and I got to have living proof that what I was teaching worked, worked. and that's why people liked my classes because they were very difficult. you know, you promenade the bar and half toe and things I mean, I would show all of that also because I could do everything. So they felt if I can do it, they can do it.
1: Yes, and so it seems today that you teach predominantly more um, a lot of, a lot of beginner ballet students as yeah. well. I'd love to know how how that developed and how that transitioned.
0: Well, you know, first of all, I started to realize I'm getting older. I can't keep doing <laughs> I can't keep doing a full class and a full bar and doing grand jetés. You know, and this was. Uh, I mean, I'm now 82, so you can imagine. Even when I started making my videos, 1995, I did one called The Thinking Dancer, working, and I'm, do, I'm showing, you know, I'm doing the thing full out, and you can go into videos even to 1997 where I'm doing a double pirouette or triple pirouettes. You know, I could show those things in the video uh, because I was actually doing them in the class, um, yes. especially in the 1980s. Um, all the Broadway gypsies were taking my class at the Broadway Dance Center, and um, I would demonstrate. I would demonstrate everything, and that's where I developed, uh, changed my the breakdown of how to pirouette. You know, but anyway, after all that, I started doing um, conventions. You know, going to different places on the weekend where you teach. You know, hundreds of people in hotel rooms. And as I did that, I said, "Oh my gosh, there's so many dancers, and they're all horrible. <laughs> you know, they don't—they <laughs> don't have any decent ballet training. They don't have any posture. They don't have any placement. They don't have any correct positioning. Um, They—all they can do is lift their legs up." So as I did that, when I went back to New York, and again, this must have been in the late. Uh, early 90s, right? Then I said to the owner, I said, why don't you let me teach um, an adult beginner ballet class? And so I started one at 4.30. And in no time, it was a sellout. It was packed. I had these adults who had never taken ballet, but had always wanted to. And it was geared to them, adult beginners. And so I found that in teaching adult beginners, I was being challenged intellectually as a teacher because how do you explain to these people what muscles they should use or, I mean, how they should go about what is the movement process? How can they yes. do things so they're really starting to learn ballet and um, eventually even learn to pirouette? And so as I did that at the same time, I was still, until 2006, I would take some of David Howard's class. I would sub for him at Step Studio teaching advanced dance. And they gave me a class of my own to teach as well. But I found the difference is that with most of the professional dancers, they just want to warm up, you know, because they, they don't. And God forbid you correct a professional dancer in class, in front of their peers. That is the unforgivable sin. And I realized, I said, you know, I don't enjoy this, just giving classes and letting people do things wrong, what I see as wrong. And I said, I would see them on stage and, you know, they're falling off their double pirouette and it's because they're doing it wrong, but they don't want to be told that. And I said, I cannot do this. You know, I can't just pamper people's egos. I said, I'm a teacher and I'm getting older, so I'm going to dedicate myself to the people I can grow old with. So in 2007, they actually gave me a, a position at what was called the Ailey Extension, which is geared to adult dancers. They call it um, real classes for real people. You know, So you're not expected. To have any training. And it's everything. It's Zumba, hip hop, African, ballet, tap, you know, all cut, co- but they're all geared to amateur, adult, non-professional, unskilled dancers. Yes. So I started there and the class just exploded. You know, and pretty soon I was getting 40 people in the class. And and the thing that's difficult about my class is that um, everyone has to send. In front of the mirror so they have to stand at portable bars that are horizontal to the mirror so they can see themselves at the bar with two hands on the bar so they can see i say when you're on your left foot can you see where your left shoulder is it's over here when you're on your right foot you see your right shoulder it's over here so they could see and i'm training them i said i want you to see what you are doing you know, not if you like what you're wearing, but are your shoulders level? Are your hips level? Are you standing over your leg? Are you able to control, you know, the, the movement you're doing and keep the leg working from the hip properly? Are you placing your foot correctly in second position? So all of these things, um, also I became a devotee of using the mirror, you know, because, um when I lost, I lost my, uh, my vocal cords um, years ago in my big studio on Broadway because of uh, the fans and speaking over the traffic. So when I went to the speech therapist, she said, I want you to stand in front of the mirror and talk to me. And when I did, I said, oh, my gosh, my vocal cords are jumping in and out and in and out. I said, she says, yes, you're squeezing your vocal cords. And I yeah. said, oh, my gosh, I never realized that. So after that, I said, you know, unless you see it in the mirror, you don't believe it. So I learned then to use the mirror. And I would tell all my, I said, you look in the mirror and you tell me your foot is not turned in. You look in the mirror and you tell me your foot is not sickling. You know, and they learned to do that. And I said, Mm -hmm. because you think you're doing it perfectly, but you're not. And until you see it in the mirror, then you'll believe what you're doing. And you have to then look in the mirror and now what is it you feel with your muscles when you make the correction to not sickle your foot or to properly keep your hips level or to round your arms, you know? So using the mirror as proof has become one of my important tools. And when I have my workshops, I teach teachers to do that. I say, you must You must try to teach your students, let them look in the mirror, because otherwise they're never going to believe what you're seeing, what you're telling them to do. You know, in Russia, you know, in the traditional schooling, yes, students face the wall, but they're being hand-placed by all the teachers, aren't they? The teacher picks up their foot and puts it here and does that, so you're being arranged by a teacher, right? But here in America, most of the classes are recreational, You know, so that unless you're working with teachers in a very small class and that teacher is going to point your foot for you and place your leg for you and round your arm for you, you don't have any idea what to do. And so most teachers then, most students, when they have to work in a studio and hang on the bar in the wall, they can't see themselves and they don't know what they're doing. So it's very intimidating And that's also one of the problems why a lot of young students today in America, they hate ballet because they can't do it. They're not being taught properly and they don't know why they can't do it. So it frustrates them. And the teachers can't explain it. They don't teach properly. So a lot of teachers give class, but I try to make the difference. And so when people come to my studio, you know, I say, I want you to realize I am not your traditional ballet teacher. So I want you to listen very carefully to what I say, and if you listen, and if you watch what I'm showing you, and you do what I do, you're going to become a better dancer. So that's I love this.
1: that. I, I, yeah, I love that. I couldn't agree more with absolutely everything you're saying. I um, I saw this video actually that you posted of a lady named Maria who is a student of yours. Uh-huh. And she practices using your online videos and has actually flown to New York for a ninety-minute private lesson with you twice now. Is that correct? And um, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, this this kind of dedication is just marvelous. And this is just another example of how amazing and loyal your clients are. They really seem to get your goal with your teaching. Well, as
0: I teach, you know, sometimes new faces come in and I look at the student I say, "Hmm, oh, that's strange. You know, I don't know who this student is, but she's working my way perfectly." And she says, "Well, I've been studying with your videos." So, <laughs> through the years, I've I've developed a lot of students, you know, because a lot of people in America they don't all live in big cities. They live in small towns, and there's no teacher, there's no dance school, and they're learning to dance. Just yesterday, um, a man wrote me. He he went along with my... I, yesterday, I taught the beginner ballet bar, and yes. he, he did it. He had never danced in his life. He had never taken a ballet class in his life, and he sent me $15 as a contribution because he said he enjoyed it so much so there you go
1: that's so lovely
0: so you know that in other words that every class i teach i always try to educate people and i'm assuming you know nothing or i'm assuming if you've been taught you haven't been taught correctly and it's based on you know years of seeing people come to my classes in new york and working so incorrectly you know it's so hurtfully really twisting their limbs and forcing the turnout and without any kind of muscular control. Um, And it really is painful for me to see that. So that is what I'm constantly trying to, to do. I don't want people to hurt themselves, but I want them to learn to think correctly and work correctly.
1: So, I, I agree. You have um, you have some tips, actually, that you post um, that you've been posting lately about for people studying at home that, for example, they need to get dressed for class. No bare feet. I love this. Would you like to share with the listeners some other suggestions whilst we're all in isolation? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, you know, I have hundreds of videos on YouTube and they're all free yes. and they're all bits of classes there. I think there are two couple of full classes, but they should go and look at all of those things. Um, and also, um, you know, now they can, they can watch uh, six days a week. I'm giving a class. I mean, all you need is the internet, you know, um, it's free. If, if people have the money and want to contribute, you're welcome to do so, but you don't have to, you don't have to pay to watch it. And uh, so they should be watching uh, my online classes and they should be um, going to YouTube, seeing all the videos I've posted. Um, Cause actually I've been posting almost every day on Instagram and Facebook, at least for the past year and a half, you know, uh, because whenever I do my workshops, we, we video them. And uh, when I do my special I initiated what I call Finest Fridays. We just work on linking steps or we'd work on the promenade and turn or uh, the stretch and turnout. So I had once a month a Friday evening just dedicated to one element of ballet. Yes. And those have all been recorded and most all of those have been posted. So, you know, it's there, but people have to look. You can't just sit, you just can't sit there and wait for it to come to you. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, is that I find that um, people have become very lazy and especially young people because they're so used to, you know, having their, their mobile in their hand and just, you know, Googling or, and they want everything free and they want everything now, you know, well, that they have to get over that. I mean, free, yeah. maybe they can get, but they have to start looking and start thinking They've got to start using their brains because all the teachers I speak to, they all say the same thing, that all the young students today, they cannot think, they cannot learn, they cannot, because they don't know how to do it, because they're so used to just looking so their brains go lame, they go idle, and that is such a danger for the future of the world, that all these young people are growing up not knowing how to think and how to learn. And that is something yes, that not
1: having, not having to think for themselves. That's create right. Create for themselves. Yeah, that's
0: right. That's right.
1: Yeah. I, um, I, I saw in a video that you were telling people that you have to demonstrate everything now because obviously you don't have a classroom full of students, but, you know, whilst teaching remotely, you have to get yourself back in shape, which I thought was so funny because I've watched your videos for such a long time and you look very in shape to me finest
0: <laughs> well because you know every day i do my stretch routine and um but you know i mean, i was highly motivated like yesterday before i gave the beginner ballet bar i did it i went through it myself just to make sure i could do it i mean i have trouble doing relevé on my left foot because that was my turning foot you know, and after so many years of doing pirouettes and my grand pirouettes on that leg, the calf is bigger and the ankle is, it's really tired, you know. So it's very hard for me to sustain a releve, a balance on that foot. I can do a pirouette if I do it quickly, you know, but um, so I've had to kind of leave out those things because usually in my classes at Ailey, uh, on the second time, they make, and they have to then, you know, do a balance on one foot. And they can do it. You know, my adult babies, a lot of, uh, if you look at some of the videos, they're able to do it. They, they can stand, they know how to place themselves. They can stand on half toe and then take their hand off the bar and they don't fall. So, um, but anyway, I've had to kind of tailor these classes because I'm not used to having to do this, you know, six mm-hmm. days a week because at the eighty Extension, I can begin the exercise and I show it. And then usually in the front line of every class, I have the experienced students who know the exercises so that the yeah. class can then follow them. So I've always relied on them, you know. And also because the, the tempo of all the classes for adults is much slower. I mean, almost everything is in Adagio. So to work that slowly, you don't really get your blood going, your circulation going. So only at times when I have a large class um, and it's more the advanced level, the beginner level, um, and usually when the weather is warmer and I can do more of the demonstrating, then I start to feel, okay, I could do more in the center. I mean, I can do chasse, bourrée. I could do that. I can do bourrée back and forth. Those things I can do, you know. Um, but I can't really promenade because also my my, you know, I haven't done this for so long to raise my leg, my foot higher than 45 degrees. And after I had my hip replacement two years ago, that also, you see, a couple of years leading up to that, I could do less and less in the class because my hip hurt too much. And after I would demonstrate, I had to kind of, you know, guide my leg. I had to kind of lift my leg up with my hand because the muscles would all cramp. I mean, they was just spasm on me and I, I could hardly walk up the stairs. So finally I had the hip surgery and um, now it's much, it's much better. But again, because I'm teaching at such a slow tempo, you know, um, and I spend a lot of time uh, working on exercises and trying to plan, you know, more videos that it's not like I do a full class every day, you see. So my legs aren't really used and my feet aren't used to doing that much. So it's kind of a miracle that I got through as much as I did yesterday of the um, beginner ballet bar. But starting this next week, we're going to be running a regular schedule. So I'll repeat. Uh, the same classes, and um, like the age-defying therapeutic stretches. I mean, that's really easy for me to do. Because again, you know, I did it on myself. I did it on what I felt I needed and what I could do. And so, you know, the people who are older, um, they they love it because it's kind of tailor-made for them. Um, So anyway, you know, that is the Whole thing that I'm working from the standpoint of I am a teacher of adult beginners, and um, I'm very happy to be that. So I'm just trying to do the best I can uh, online. But you know, if people want advanced classes, well, there are other people they can look at online because a lot of the professional dancers are they're doing the same thing, you know. So you want a professional class? Well, then look at a professional dancer. You know, but they're not going to get the same corrections (laughs) they would get from me. You know, because again, my focus is that so many people... I mean, I just saw, I'm not going to mention the company or the dancer's name, but he was um, the principal dancer in a famous Balanchine ballet. And um, in this variation, which is, you can see Barishnikov doing it um, uh, on YouTube, He has to do pirouette, double tour, pirouette, double tour. And this goes back, you know, 30 years, 40 years. I think it was done for Igor Yuskevich. So it's a famous male, you know, solo. And this dancer started doing it. And I said, oh, 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 we're in trouble. Because I could see already his timing was off and he wasn't spotting. And he, when he finished the last tour, he landed on his knee. And he fell over, and he sat on his butt. And that is the first time I've ever seen that happen in a professional company in New York, you know, with a professional dancer. But you know what's happening these days, you see, is the training has become so poor that that dancer is being taught to exactly what I said never do. He was using his support. He was turning to the right. And he was pulling his left arm in for the force. And he was then turning his body and dragging his head. Whereas what I teach is that if you're going to do a double tour to the right, and you can see that, by the way, you know, there's a link. I should send you, which shows you when I did my, um, in the zealous variations, and I do the double tour, double tour, and I do double tour right to second, double tour left. But, I spot very quickly. And that's what Eric Boone did. That's what he taught me. And today, so many dancers, men and women, they're very lazy. They don't spot. They don't spot. They they pull their shoulders around, and then the head lags afterward. So that is why their dancing is not vibrant. It's not exciting. It's not dynamic because they have no spot. And so that's what happened to this guy is that he was putting all his force in his arm and turning his shoulders around instead of turning his head. And if you go and look at Misha on YouTube, whatever he does his double tours, when he goes in the air, by the time he reaches the top, he's already finished one tour, and he does the second tour on the way down because he's spotting that quickly. And so many teachers that even say, oh, no, you go up in the air and then you turn. You know, so it's completely incorrect. And so that is why you see a lot of dull dancers on stage because without eyes, you're not brilliant. You
1: follow? So at this point, I'm so sorry, Finus, and my internet connection was lost. In fact, it was lost a few minutes ago, but in true Finus fashion, he kept on going. But wow, what an incredible story. I am so sorry for cutting it short and not being able to provide you with a polished finish. Finus said that his voice was hoarse when we reconnected and he just couldn't possibly go on, which I completely respect. And after all, he had classes to teach the next morning. If you loved his story as much as I did and want further information, please visit finusjung.com for further info to purchase his book or to check out his amazing classes. I hope this interview brought a smile to your face and I hope that you're looking after yourself. A huge thank you to everyone who has been joining me for Glass During Class on Friday evenings, which is live on Instagram and Facebook at 5 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, or to those who have booked in for a private Zoom class with me, Look, right now, it means the absolute world to me and I just can't thank you enough during this very strange time. If you want to support Balanced Ballerinas and these conversations in a different way, you can also visit balanceballerinas.com/shop to purchase some of our famous merchandise, our famous ballet, ballet, ballet singlets. We've got a few left, so jump on and have a look and I'll post them out to you ASAP. Have an amazing week, and as always, would love to hear what you thought of this episode. Bye for now.